0: We've been looking um, this uh, Advent period leading up to Advent at the book of Ruth. We're going to continue doing that today. We're up to Ruth uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and before I get to that, as I look at you guys this morning, one of the things that I, you, when you've been doing what I do for a living for a long time, one of the things you know is that the Sunday after Thanksgiving is one of the hardest Sundays of the year. Did you hear me? Let me say that again. I'm going to have to repeat a lot of things today, right? The Sunday after Thanksgiving is the hardest Sunday of the year. Why? Well, because you're full, overfull. You're tired. You're overwhelmed. Some of you are bitter and angry. <laughs> Some of you are sad. Some of you are wondering how come these kids that were down front didn't do anything kind for you uh, over the holidays or no one else did anything kind for you when all you did was pour it out for others, right? <clears throat> you realize if today's the first Sunday in Advent, that means we're in it <laughs> for the next four weeks. Uh, actually, the next five weeks and... Uh, Here we go. Uh, Some of you got to get back to work and school tomorrow. You're not ready. (laughs) You think you are. Um, It doesn't matter whether you're ready or not. That's the great thing about so much of uh, what God has prepared for us. So, uh, So in light of that today, today's sermon is short, simple, to the point. One point, actually. And I'm going to tell you now, so that when the uh, tryptophan, which if you don't know what that is, look it up, uh, kicks in, or the fatigue or the distraction uh, kicks in, uh, you will have heard this, and this bit of truth will stick. Uh, And this is the great news about this truth is, It's true. It's objectively real, whether you feel it or not. And that is, there is a redeemer of God's people. Period. No matter whatever else may be going on in the world, no matter whatever else may be true in your life, What we testify to in Advent and Christmas, what Ruth testifies to us today, is this. There is a Redeemer for God's people. That's our joy. That's our hope. That's our longing, regardless of circumstances. And so what I want us to do today is to look at that. We're only going to look at one verse uh, from uh, from from Ruth. But before we do that, we need to, some of you weren't here and just, you know, it seems like it was a long time since last Sunday. So uh, just a quick review. Uh, Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. They have two sons, Machlon and Kilion. They live in Israel, actually in Bethlehem during the period of the judges. There's a famine in the land. They go to the land of Moab. While there, all the men die. Uh, the two boys have taken uh, Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, and these three women are left. So uh, Naomi hears that God has lifted the famine in Israel, and she decides to go back, probably to die near her hometown. On the road, she tells her daughters-in-law for a variety of reasons some of which is that she believes that God's against her, and if they're with her, he'll be against them. Also, partly because they're a burden to her. She doesn't really want their fellowship or their relationship. She says, go back to Moab. Orpah kisses her, goes back. But Ruth says that great thing, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Uh, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. So they come to Bethlehem, and as they come to Bethlehem, the ladies in town look at her and say, wow, look, it's awesome, Naomi's come back. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. We talked last week about the irony of that, that Ruth is standing right next to her, the very provision of God, uh, as she sees herself as being empty. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Ruth and bitter Naomi settle in Bethlehem. And that's how chapter 1 ends. Now, what we would expect is for that story to continue. But instead, the writer begins Ruth chapter 2. That text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here's the thing that we have to see. Rather than this, this, the scene shifts, rather than continue with the sad, grief-stricken widows, these two uh, sad, grief-stricken widows who in a day and age and in a period of time where, where women... Uh, uh, as value is determined by their husbands and by uh the uh the, the their children uh they they have no means of support no way of of caring for themselves we would think that what the story would tell us next is what happens to them but instead what we read is that all along without any knowledge of of Naomi without any real sense of that there was someone living in Bethlehem who was distantly, 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 distantly related to Naomi's husband. And that made him responsible for Naomi and for Ruth. So rather than continue with a movement on into Bethlehem, there's a digression in the story and the introduction literally out of nowhere. Because Naomi doesn't remember Boaz if she ever met him at all. Now, some people read this and it's a, a relative, but... It, it's really, you know, it's, it's not like those people, it's not even like those people that you see once a year at the holidays and your kids are like, tell me who that guy is again, right? <laughs> who shows up and you're like, that's your great uncle Fred or whatever. It's not even that distance. They, they're, they're in the same kind of clan or tribe, but these are this is a very distant relative, very distant, just barely related, right? Um, and so... One of the things that, we, that, that is profound about this is all this time that Naomi believes there's no one to care for her, that Naomi believes that she's left all alone in the world, that everything else has deserted her, that God is against her, all this time there in Bethlehem was a redeemer, someone who would provide exactly what she needed. And what we read in the text is, it says here that he was a worthy man. Now, uh, that, that language that's used there to describe him that's called a worthy man is, is language worth looking at. Because typically what it means in the Old Testament, that phrase doesn't refer to somebody who's a good guy or a helpful man or that sort of thing. It really means a mighty warrior. Someone who is a big soldier. Someone who is, who is good with a sword and good with a spear, good with a bow and arrow. But it, the, we, we don't really get that sense from Boaz that he was a soldier, though during the time of the judges, he may have had to, uh, ha, ha, he may have had to do that. He may have had to be a fighter. But what we, what we recognize about him is, is that what the text wants us to see is that he's a man of substance. Not just that he's wealthy. We'll find that out. He is wealthy, but he's a man of integrity. A man of kindness a man of gentleness, a man who, uh, as we'll see, seems to have a deep and abiding faith in the God of Israel and someone who takes very seriously what God says in his word. And so he's a very, very impressive man. Next slide. One of the things that you'll note about this, though, and one of the things that the writer of this story wants us to see is, is that uh, he will be a perfect match for Ruth, Because in chapter 3, verse 11 of Ruth, uh, Boaz is talking to Ruth and he says, All my fellow townspeople know that you're a worthy woman. Guys, have you said to your wife lately, you are a worthy woman and everybody knows it? Have you said that? Listen. You want some entertainment this afternoon? Google quotes about Boaz and Ruth. Hilarious. Debate, raging debate in Google about if you're a single woman and you want to be married, then you need to wait on your Boaz. But no, no. There's another side to that story. And that is, Ruth didn't wait on her Boaz, she went out into the field. So get out there and get busy. So, whichever way it is, it's worth your, it's it's quite entertaining. And there's some pretty profane stuff about this too, about, uh, taking a play on Boaz's name, uh, about different kinds of people that you don't want, uh, that you don't want to marry. But the thing about it is, it is a pretty profound picture to us of, of this man, a good man, a worthy man. But in 311, he uses the same language that the writer uses to describe him of Ruth. That, 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 that language there that says a worthy woman is the same, this, the feminine version of what it says about him as being a worthy man. They're a match. They're a perfect match. Now, one of the things, and one of the things that's important about us to to read in this text and to see about this is one of the reasons why I believe this is historical and is accurate is that verse 311. Because it seems very telling and very accurate to me about the way people are. All my fellow townspeople know that you're a worthy woman. How do we know? How How does Boaz know that? Because people talk they're talking. They're talking. Have you seen Ruth? A worthy woman. Boaz. Check out Ruth. And, and Boaz says, you, my dear, are a worthy woman. And everybody says so. People talk, don't <laughs> they? <laughs> Except in this case, they're saying something good, something positive, something that's, that's actually helpful. So, so one of the things that we note about him is that he is a great man, a kind man, a gentle man. Now, it's interesting. We don't know exactly what the word Boaz means. Perhaps it means strength because it's a word that is not used very often in the Old Testament. It's a word uh, that, uh, uh, and it's a name that, uh, that you don't see occurring very often. But there's something notable about the word Boaz, the name Boaz. Next slide, please, Liz. The, the other prominent place where the name Boaz shows up in the Old Testament is in the description of the building of the temple. When Solomon uh, took over uh, the the kingship in Israel after David died, his job was to build the temple, uh, one of the grandest buildings in the ancient world, one of the, gra- the certainly the the center point and center place of the worship of God's people there in Jerusalem. The temple was gigantic. It was beautiful. And in the vestibule, we don't have a vestibule at this church. We have a gallery. The area where you come in, right, they had pillars. And he set up the pillars. This is Solomon. Set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jacob. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. So every time the people of God come to the temple, they got to walk by a a, um, a pillar named Boaz, now, why would that be? Well, I think there's a, there's a reminder to them of this story, certainly. But there even more than that, there's a reminder that there's a redeemer. That as you come to worship, as you come as a people of God, what you need to see is already there in that place is someone who has redeemed you, a kinsman redeemer, a someone who is who loves you, who knows you, is committed to you, and will do whatever it takes, pay whatever price to redeem you. So i think it's a, I think it's a it's a pretty powerful thing we We have two uh two pillars out in our in our gallery. We should name them <laughs> i don 't know what we would name them i don't know how we would arrive at that uh, uh, at, at that distinction. You probably never pay any attention to those pillars at all. You probably don't look at them. You probably don 't think about them. Your kids do because they climb on them. You know how I know that? Because there's scuff marks on, on them. That's why we have to paint them often. They should keep climbing on them. I'm glad someone's enjoying them and appreciating their strength, right? But I mean, just imagine going up to your kids and saying, quit climbing on Boaz, and they'll they'll they won't they'll need counseling after that. So, <laughs> so so the so the fact that the, the, there's something that to me that is just very profound about that. I don't think it was just a a a reminder to the people of God that. That, uh, that Boaz was a great, great, great grandfather. Now he's named after for one of these pillars in the temple. I think it is a reminder to all of us. It was a reminder to the people that as they came to worship that they needed a redeemer and that God had supplied one. That in their darkest hour, in the deepest hole, the bleakest grief, there was a man and that man was Boaz and he was there as the very provision of God for people who had a deep need, as Kevin said earlier, a need they knew they were needy, they knew they were broken, and they had no resources to fix and to meet that need uh, we were We were in North Carolina for a couple of days over Thanksgiving and I was talking with my dad, and we were uh, talking about some of the people who cared for my mom at the hospice center there uh, uh, when she was sick. And there was a a certified nursing assistant, a CNA, whose name was Carla, who uh, really stands out in my memory as somebody who really loved my mom and cared for her a great deal. And, of course, over two weeks in this kind of situation, you get to know these people. You find out a lot about their lives, and they find out a lot about yours. And so we would we would talk back and forth. And one of the things that Carla was talking to my dad about, my dad said, you know, Carla, how can I pray for you? And she said, didn't know I was going to be preaching on this, she said, pray that I'll find my Boaz. So my dad reminded me of that uh, over Thanksgiving, and he's like, have you been praying for Carla to find her Boaz? I said, I have. And I'm preaching on Boaz Sunday morning, and there will be about 700 people in Richmond who will be praying now for Carla to find her Boaz. Um, And I sensed when she said that she would find her Boaz that there had been some disappointments, some terrible things along the way that had put her in that position where that's what her longing and that's what her desire was, right? Right? It would be good for us to remember with our burdens and our brokenness and our sadness and our grief and our rebellion and our bitterness that when we come to worship God, there's a Redeemer. Now, I know for many of you, you don't care. Honestly, you don't care. Because what you think is that's fine, that's religious. And that's good, but I need this. You know what? Bring it. And I'm not telling you to bring it. Jesus says to bring it. You can can be bitter. You can be angry. You can be disappointed. Notice, nowhere in Ruth does the writer say, Naomi, stop being such a bitter witch. Nobody says that. God just keeps supplying witness after witness after witness, person after person after person to care for her, to provide for her. There's a redeemer. You may think the situation's too bleak, too dark, because all you can see is what you can see. Listen, let me say that again. All you can see is all you can see. And that's not all there is. Naomi can't see Boaz. But he's there. Naomi can't see Ruth, even though she's standing right next to her. But she's there. All you can see is what is within your horizon. You can't see what's beyond it. Jesus Christ is with you. He is for you. And he is beyond the horizon. And he is at this moment, if you belong to him, redeeming your life. Yes, he lived. Yes, he died. Yes, he rose again, and yes, he is coming again. And at this moment, he is actively involved in redeeming you, changing your circumstances, changing your heart, preparing for you a destiny and a future more wonderful than you can imagine. You, maybe you can't see it. And in our day and age, you know, maybe you can't feel it, whatever that means. But it's there. And you see, that is the great thing about Advent and the great thing about the incarnation and the great thing about the gospel. It is objectively true. There is a Redeemer. And and that fact remains true even if we remain caught up in our bitterness and our anger and our disappointment and our grief. That bitterness and grief, God already knows that about you. you. Don't you think he sees Naomi? Don't you think he feels what Naomi is feeling? Don't you think he understands that? And yet, in all of that, he is simply at work, preparing, redeeming, at work. She can't see it but it doesn't matter in some ways that she can't see it because it's objectively true and it is happening. Now, it would be better for her friends and her family, it would be better for her heart to see and to believe and to take the Lord at his word that he is a redeemer. But the fact is, the truth is, oftentimes we find ourselves in places where we just can't see it. Or we think the Lord's redemption will go this far, but no further. And yet, what Ruth 2, one tells us is, there was a man, a worthy man, a man of substance and important, who was just beyond the horizon, who was Redeemer. Hear now these words of institution, the Lord's Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's use this prayer of confession from the book of Common Prayer. That's in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart,